The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. We'll be reading to verse 11 this morning. The word of the Lord. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 4 this morning. The word of our God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, a vacation can be a really good thing. So imagine with me for a moment that this coming year you take a a vacation and you stay at a really nice bed and breakfast. And there in one of the sitting rooms, there's this beautiful coffee table. It's made out of a single slab of redwood. You know when they, they take the wood and they polish it up and you can see all the grain in it? And you think to yourself, something like that would be perfect for our living room. So you treat yourself. You go online, you find exactly what you're looking for, you place the order, and then you wait. Then you wait a little bit longer. And finally, the delivery truck comes with your prized piece of furniture, and they not only bring it into the house, they set it up for you right there in your living room, and it's exactly what you wanted. It's just beautiful. And you're so grateful. You're going to be able to enjoy this coffee table For years and years to come. You're going to leave it to your children's children. And so you go and get a couple of your favorite books, and you go to arrange them on the table so that, um, you know, it's going to be homey for you. It's not a table in a showroom. It's your table. And you place the books on the table, and the wood breaks in half right in front of your eyes. It was all shiny on the outside, but the wood was rotten in the middle. How do you feel? 
feel about the company that sold you a slab of rotten wood as though it was a piece of fine furniture. And Jesus is telling us today that's the way the Lord feels about people whose piety is all shiny on the outside, but rotten on the inside. It turns out, by the way, that the analogy he's using here um, in this story about people being hypocrites and coding things over on the outside was actually a real issue in the business world. Uh, If you think about the pottery industry, which was so important in the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, they did not have all the nice packing materials we have today. And so people would make all these beautiful pots, and then before they could sell them, they might get chipped or cracked. And it turns out, quite obviously, you cannot sell a cracked pot for anywhere near the amount of money you're going to get for one that's perfect. And so unscrupulous merchants would take wax, and they put the wax there in the crack, and then they'd paint over it, and it would look just fine. And customers would come in, and if they weren't careful enough, they'd buy these cracked pots. And, and as they took them home, if they got out in the sun too long, or maybe later that year if it was in a hot environment, they'd realize they'd bought a defective product, that they had been ripped off. So um, artisans who really cared about their craft, some of them actually took the stamping on their pots without wax. Right? No cracks. I'm not, I'm not pulling any games here. Without wax. And the Latin for without wax is sine cara. That's where we get our word sincere from. Sincere comes means you don't, you don't put wax in there. You're the real deal. And Jesus is calling us to be without wax in our spiritual lives. That's a question we have to ask ourselves. How much of our piety is simply us authentically walking before God, seeking his pleasure, seeking his praise, delighting in him, and how much is it We put wax in all the cracks and we paint it over so we can look good to other people and receive our praise not from God, but from mere human beings. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, motives matter. Second, seeking first the praise of men leads to sinfulness and corruption, and third, seeking first the praise of God leads to holiness and to wholeness. Let me give those to you again. First, motives matter. Second, seeking first the praise of men leads to sinfulness and corruption, and third, seeking first the praise of God leads to holiness and to wholeness. Now, Jesus is going to apply these three truths of biblical piety, which are, by the way, very important in the first century to the Jews that lived in his day, but they remain important for us as Christians. He's going to apply these three aspects of biblical piety, uh, these truths to three aspects of biblical piety, giving money to the poor, prayer, and fasting. So, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at how these principles work with prayer and fasting, But in this morning's passage, he's going to begin by stating the principle and then applying it to our charity. That is, whether or not we're helping people out of a desire to actually help them and glorify God, or are we doing it for show to make ourselves look good. We begin with the truths that the Lord cares a great deal about our motives, 
and that our motives set the direction for a great deal of our lives. I'm going to step back for a moment and ask you to think about this. How much of your life is driven by two things, who you are grateful for and whose praise you're seeking? It turns out that our motives drive our actions, and therefore our motives are very important, or as I put it, motives matter. So look at verse 1 with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now it's important here that we pay careful attention to exactly what Jesus is saying. First, just a little detail. Um, the word that's translated beware is the imperative of the word to be concerned about. A beware makes good sense because Jesus is warning us of something. He's saying, you know, we use beware, don't do this. But it's helpful for us to realize that the, the Greek word here has the idea at its root of concern. Because what Jesus is telling us is, is, you know, there's many things in your life you're concerned about that honestly aren't worth a lot of your time, thought, effort, and so on. You want to know what you ought to be concerned about? Here's something you really ought to be concerned about. Right? Are you doing your piety before God, or are you doing it for the sake of being seen by human beings? Be concerned that you are not practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Now, we should not confuse the simplicity and the brevity of what Jesus is saying for the degree to which it's important in your life. It turns out that your motives matter a great deal to God, and your motives are also going to shape the future of your life. We'll say more about that in a moment. Second, practicing your righteousness must be understood in terms of our actions. That is, our right conduct in doing the will of God, right? Actions, doing. Jesus is not talking about the imputed righteousness we receive, which is so important to us. It's the ground on which we're, we're justified. But he's talking about our righteousness in terms of the way that we're living to the glory of God. Third, as Tom Wright points out, Jesus doesn't say that the outward things don't matter. Right? All that really matters is what's going on in your heart. That's actually a very popular 19th into the 20th century misunderstanding that kind of carries over still to our day. Jesus does not say that the outward things don't matter. Giving money to those in need, praying to God day by day, and fasting when it's appropriate are all good things for the people of God to be doing. In fact, Jesus assumes that people will continue to do all of these things and many more. What matters is learning to do them simply to and for God himself. That's what Jesus is driving at. I want to elaborate on that just a little bit. Uh, we cannot claim to have good, pure, and upright thoughts if they're not manifested in action. To paraphrase James, a so-called faith without works is useless. Right? That sort of so-called faith doesn't do any good to your neighbor. It doesn't glorify God. And that so-called faith won't save you either. 
Let's not imagine that we can replace good works and bad motives with good motives that are without works. If you have good motives, that's going to result in you living differently. True faith, like true love, gets off the couch and it does something. When we move to verses 2 and 4, Jesus is going to be focusing on the specific issue of how we help the poor. Uh, This sort of charity isn't merely about being nice. If you look at our Old Testament um, reading this morning, these are things God commands his people to do. This is part of what it means to love God and to walk in his ways. In our Old Covenant reading, our Lord says this, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. See, this wasn't an optional extra for particularly pious Jews or particularly pious Christians. This is what God is calling all his people to do as we reflect his generous character and his love for his people by our own generosity and our own love for the people of God. Now, some of the details of how this gets carried out do shift with the coming of the new covenant. But the command for us to tangibly use our material wealth to bless those in need remains. True faith, like true love, gets off the couch, and it does something. Fourth, please notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't do your righteous deeds before men. Uh, That's a common misunderstanding. I actually even saw that in one of the commentaries I was reading. But Jesus does not say, don't do your righteous deeds before men, period. As though that's the point. Um, Think back to um, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Back early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the big picture of what he is calling us to do and to be. Our Lord said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus didn't teach us that in Matthew 5, 16, only to turn around in chapter 6, verse 1, and tell us the exact opposite. But if you look at what Jesus says, he doesn't say don't do your righteous deeds before human beings. He says don't do them so that you will be seen by them. Jesus is talking about our motives. Jesus isn't talking about the location of our righteous deeds in this passage. He is warning us about our motives for doing them. The key phrase is, in order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The motivation for our good deeds must be our love for God, and our love for our neighbors. If we're doing good deeds out of a desire to be seen and to be praised by our neighbors, 
well, actually, our neighbors might benefit by our deeds. Right? They may benefit. But that doesn't glorify God. And it isn't going to do us any good either. The Lord who looks upon our hearts says, if that is your motive, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. As God's word as a whole makes abundantly clear, in order for something to be a good work, it must be in accordance with God's will, and it must be done out of right motives. That is, out of faith in God, right? Confidence in God's work in Jesus Christ for you, but confidence in God in general, and out of love for God and love for your neighbor. You need both. And it turns out that if you do what are outwardly good deeds that actually line up with God's word, but you do them out of bad motives, it doesn't simply cease to be a good work, it actually becomes sin for which you will be held accountable before the judge of all the earth. Beloved, your motives matter. And it turns out that your motives not only matter in the eyes of God, which of course is most important, but your motives will also change the course of your life. Seeking first praise from other human beings in general will corrupt you. It will lead to sinfulness and corruption in your life. But seeking first your praise from the living God, from your Father in heaven, will lead to holiness and to wholeness. Jesus begins with the negative side of the equation. It's actually pretty common, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does negative, then positive. Or sometimes just gives us the negative and assumes we can apply the positive ourselves. And in verse 2, Jesus is moving from that broad category of righteous deeds, in verse 1, to the specific category of Christian charity. Please look at verse 2 with me. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Please notice that Jesus is not simply offering some sage advice about how you can get ahead in this world. Um, Doing outward shows of piety or charitable giving may very well get you praise in this life. If your goal was simply to get ahead in this world, this might work. By the way, that's one of the reasons why charitable organizations out there in the world often um, try to acknowledge in some public way their very generous benefactors. Uh, They'll make up uh, tiers of giving. You know, if you give at a certain level, you'll be a silver giver, and then a gold giver, and then a platinum giver, and you get your name on a plaque or published in a mailing they send out. Um, You know, if you give enough money to an institution, they might rename a building after you or a chapel after you. It's kind of pathetic that happens in the church. Um, They may even name the entire school after you, renaming colleges to kind of praise these big donors because they're trying to use that motivation to get the money out of you. But, you know, when Jesus tells us the story of the widow throwing in her mite, you know, just a little copper coin and saying, She gave more than all the rest because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty to the glory of God. That just drives a stake through that whole process, right? 
it, it, that honoring those who happen to have a lot of money and give a lot of money away works in the world. It may get you ahead in this life. People will think of you as a benefactor and a philanthropist. But beloved, it doesn't earn you any awards before God, before whom all your wealth belongs to him anyway. I should add, this is actually a common practice. We have, we have good evidence for this in the synagogues of the first century. Synagogues in the first so Jesus isn't just winging it here, saying this will happen someday. Synagogues in the first century routinely, publicly honored those who gave large donations for the new building or whatever the project happened to be, just like those uh, secular charitable organizations in our day do, and regretfully the way that some churches do. You know, it's possible to get your name in a brick or a stained glass window of many churches if you donate enough money. They might even name a, a sub-chapel after you, you know, in honor of you. But that's not what God is looking for. And I, I actually once was out, um, I, was, I was actually going to a job interview in uh, Southern California, and I drove past the Crystal Cathedral. And so on my way back, I felt like I had to go there and just see this thing. It's, it was famous. I saw it on TV when I was a kid, this massive glass building. And it was one of the most appalling things I've ever seen in my life. Because everything there had someone's name on it. As you walked along, all the bricks were, had names on it for people that donated a certain amount, and benches were named for people that had, had um, donated larger amounts and so on. And, and the first thing that came to my mind as I walked through there was, and they have the reward in full. And they have the reward in full. And they have their reward in full. That is not what God is calling us to do. And, and, and I should add, by the way, um, the church is not just another charitable organization. We are the household of faith. We are the family of God gathered together. We ought not to be like this, both in our corporate lives, but also in our private lives as well. So yes, there is a type of reward that can come from outward shows of charity, particularly if you are affluent. But what Jesus wants us to see is that the passing praise of men is the end of the line for that type of giving. You know how ephemeral that is? It's like the dust in the wind. You, you get your moment of praise and tomorrow it's gone. Right? And Jesus says, that's it. You were doing these acts like you were doing them to the glory of God and your Father in heaven looks in your heart and goes, you've got to be kidding me. You're heaping up wrath, not blessings for yourself. Such fleeting praise from men will blow away like dust in the wind. On the other hand, those who give out of a genuine love for God store up treasures for themselves in heaven that no one can ever take away. Let me just remind you how foolish it is to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. But let me also say how foolish it is for those of us who are actually, truly God's children to invest so much of our emotional effort in getting the rewards of the world that will pass away rather than investing our lives with a view to eternity with God. Okay? That's foolish for us, not just foolish for the world. Beloved, your motives matter in this present age. And your motives in this present age will matter forever. How foolish it is to spend our lives seeking the praise of other sinners who are here today and gone tomorrow. 
how much worse this is when we're trying to seek the praise from other sinners by doing things that are designed to appear like we're really seeking God. Think about prayer and fasting, but it could be you know, charitable giving, giving to your church. Right? If you're doing those things for show, that's a stench in the nostrils of the Almighty. And our Lord Jesus Christ calls the people who do this hypocrites. I think most of you know that a hypocrite was originally an actor on the Greek stage. And often actors played many different parts. And the word actually has to do with a the mask they would wear. They often had them on sticks and so on. But the actors would simply change parts by changing their mask to appear to be someone other than who they really were. And so in the ancient world, it was very natural to take that idea of trying to appear to be something other than you are and apply it to human beings. That's not just in the church. That was used in secular society. Right? A hypocrite is someone who looked one way on the outside, but who was something else on the inside. I think Sinclair Ferguson gives us a very insightful, and frankly, a practical comment about hypocritical giving. Professor Ferguson writes, the hypocrite is not helping the poor half as much as he is using the poor to help himself. Do you get that motive? Right? The point isn't the person in front of you who's needy. It's I'm going to help that person so people can see me helping them and they can praise me for it. It's not helping the poor. It's using them for my own self-esteem. It might be private, but perhaps from the praise of other human beings. I want to encourage you to use that as a lens in your own giving. Um, you probably need to go somewhere and be quiet to do this, right? To be really honest with yourself. But are you giving to bless other people and to please your Father in heaven? Or do you give because of how, in this particular circumstance, such giving reflects upon you? I trust if you're honest, you're going to discover of it some of both. God's saying, I'm calling you to reform your motives. More and more die on the sin, more and more live on the righteousness. Now, it'd be very easy here to talk about how, how much we dislike those hypocrites over there. Hypocrites are bad, right? Don't be a hypocrite like them. But Jesus isn't giving these words simply for them. He's giving these words to us so that we will change, so that we will become more like Jesus. Jesus is telling us those things so that we will learn from his words and change the way that we live. And I think to make meaningful progress, we need to come to grips with why we're tempted to be hypocrites in the first place. Right? Why, why do we want to do this? It's not something we just happen to drift into every now and then. And here's the issue. We all want to be praised. And let me say clearly, that's not wrong. God created you to be praised. But the fact that we all want to be praised leaves us vulnerable. How does that work? Depends on who you're seeking praise from. People whom we are seeking praise from have power over us. We will bend what we say and what we do in an effort to get their praise. That's so important. I want to tell you that again. People whom we are seeking to praise have power over us. 
because we will bend what we say and what we do in an effort to get their praise. Now, it's not wrong that you seek praise from people. You were created for that. But if you seek praise indiscriminately from people, you're going to be bent in all sorts of directions. You're going to end up seeking your praise from people who actually hate God. It's going to bend you in corrupting ways in your life. But if you seek your praise from God, from righteous people who are pulling in the same direction, they want you to follow God, then you're going to be bent to say and to do things that honor the Lord. Who you are seeking praise from is incredibly power, powerful in our lives. Now, the two issues Jesus is teaching us here are simple. Um, they're just not easy. So you're going to understand these things as soon as I say them, but you're going to have to work to put them into practice. First, we must desire praise from the Lord more than we desire praise from men. It's not wrong for you to get praise and to give praise, by the way. Uh, you're a parent. You ought to give praise for your children when they do good things, right? You ought to do that. Your employees, other people, your friends. Getting and giving praise is not the problem. But you need to work to make sure that you desire the praise of God more than the praise of men, even those people you love that are close to you. Because the time comes in your life, and it actually comes regularly in your life, where you have to choose that if you choose to seek the praise of God, you're going to get the displeasure of men. And if you choose to seek the praise of men, you're going to get the displeasure of God. So you need to like the praise of God more, desire the praise of God more, so you're bent that way. Let goods and kindred go, right? That you would seek the praise of your Father in heaven. Second, we should never be doing things which are specifically directed towards God as a way of trying to gain the praise of men who are watching our supposed acts of piety. Now this perhaps will become even more obvious when we talk about prayer and fasting. right? So you know, if you're praying, not to God, but you're praying so people will overhear you and that they will praise you for how eloquent and pious and deep your spirituality is, you're in serious trouble. That's why when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites do with lots of fancy words. You notice the Lord's Prayer is actually pretty simple. We pray it every week. You can learn it as a little child, right? Because not, it's not designed to teach us how to pray to impress kings and princes. It's designed that we'd open our hearts up and care about what God thinks, right? But I want you to realize this also applies to our charity. And, of course, it would have been easier for the Jews to get this because they considered their almsgiving to be an ordinary part of um, righteous piety. By the way, they were right to do so. Right? So you're, you're giving to diaconal uh, needs in the church, which, of course, we keep secret. That's part of the point. Um, it, it is part of your worship. We're going to take a diaconal offering this morning. This is part of worshiping God. And it could also be you simply taking a bit of money you have or wealth or time or resources or uh, a washing machine you happen to have left over, whatever it happens to be, and giving it to someone in need quietly just to bless them. That is an act of worship to God. Our, our ancient Jewish forebearers were not wrong to see it that way. But the issue is, seeking first the praise of men will lead to sinfulness and corruption, while seeking first the praise of God will lead to holiness and to wholeness. Now, having given the negative example in verse 2, Jesus moves from don't do this over to do this instead in verses 3 and 4. Please look there with me. Verses 3 and 4. 
Our Lord says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now think back to what Jesus said early on in the Sermon on the Mount, which I've already quoted for you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the problem is not that other people will see your good works. The the question here isn't about them, it's about you. What's your motive in them seeing your good works? Right? Are, are you doing it so they will applaud you, or are you doing it so they'll glorify your heavenly Father? Are we letting our light shine before men so that they give glory to our Father in heaven, or so that they may see that we are truly amazing lights and praise us for being the finest Christians they've ever met? In fact, this isn't just about other people. You know, that, that's kind of tricky there. Um, I wonder if you caught this. Jesus is saying this isn't just about how other people perceive you. This is also about how you perceive yourself. That, that's the issue of the right and the left hand. You know, because you could do something where tomorrow you see someone in need and you very quietly help them out. You do it anonymously. They don't even know about it. And then you spend the rest of the day patting yourself on the back. And Jesus is saying that's not right. You're not to seek their praise, but you're not to seek your praise either, right? Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's not the goal. The goal is to bless them, to love them, and to glorify your Father who has given you the means to actually help them. Now, if you know your own heart, you know you can quietly, even anonymously, do those sorts of things, and they can become a source of pride for you. Rather than a source of gratitude, but the Lord has put you in that place with the means to make a difference in other people's lives. This also means that there's a great deal to be said for keeping your giving as anonymous as possible. Now, this is not an absolute rule. I'm not saying you never actually just give someone a check or you give them things as part of your relationships. Uh, that's, a, that's a perfectly good thing. But you know, the nice thing about anonymous giving is uh, when you receive something you really need, you naturally, instinctively want to give thanks. You really do. You know, the old line, it just kind of feels sorry for the atheist when they see a beautiful sunrise and they don't have anyone to give thanks to. Because they really do. They're created that way. And when you give things to people anonymously and they want to give thanks to someone and they don't know who it was, because if they knew you gave it to them, they might stop at giving thanks to you they're actually more likely to lift their eyes heavenward and give thanks to God for you and for his provision in their lives. So I think there's something really useful for us. And um, go ahead and at least sometimes make sure that our giving is, in fact, anonymous. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean you will be missing out. You will not be missing out because you don't receive the joy of someone else thanking you for your gift. Because God says your Father in heaven sees you. He always sees you. And he will reward you. 
The incarnate Son of God gives you his word. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's an interesting thing here, if you look at the various commentaries or listen to some sermons, uh, people get anxious about this, the whole idea of getting rewards. That you're getting rewards from God this should be a motivation for your life. And um, Jesus kind of mucks that all up for us in, in the piety that we create for ourselves because three times in four verses he talks about the rewards we get from our Father in heaven. What exactly is Jesus saying? As I say, I know this makes some people uncomfortable because they imagine that it would be better to seek the glory of God without any concern for reward. And I think that comes from understanding how corrupting it can be for us to do things for the sake of the reward rather than for the sake of blessing someone else. But Jesus is saying, your problem isn't that you want someone's praise, You were created to receive praise. Your problem is that you're seeking praise in the wrong place and from the wrong person. You're seeking praise from man rather than from God. So how ought we to think about rewards? Just two things and we're done. First, um, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wisely wrote, We must not be troubled by unbelievers... He wrote that a long time ago. I would also add, and fellow Christians. We must not be troubled by unbelievers and fellow Christians when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life like a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things that you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Uh, Money is not a natural reward for love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. You see how that works? Lewis continues, Similarly, we might say that a silver cup is not a very suitable reward for a schoolboy who works hard, whereas a scholarship at the university would be. And C.S. Lewis concludes his argument like this, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. See, that's how it works when we're seeking our rewards from God. It's part of our relationship between our Father in heaven as children on earth that draws us together for a relationship that we will enjoy without end. Beloved, you were created to seek and receive the praise of the living God. Um, Think about this on a human basis. When a human father warmly praises and rewards his son for a job well done, that's not bad. Not only does it encourage the son to continue to grow in those behaviors, it also helps pull the father and the son closer together in the relationship. Your father in heaven is doing something like that with you as well. The problem with being motivated by rewards is not the rewards themselves. It is that we are prone to seek the rewards from someone other than God. Well, Lewis is right. But I want to leave you with an application that is, I think, simpler and even more direct. Part of the reason why your Father in Heaven promises you, it's all throughout Scripture, 
why your Father in Heaven promises you rewards is He wants you to remember that His loving eye is always upon you. Right? The world may not see, but your Father sees. He always is looking upon you with love and concern. And He wants to grab hold of our emotions and our motivations. And He does this not only for His own glory, but also for your good. As I said a number of times this morning, the people whom we are seeking praise from have power over us. We will bend what we say and we do to seek their praise. Therefore, when we are committed to seeking our praise from God, the Lord uses that very motivation to bend us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, May he lead us to seek his pleasure and to walk in his ways until we are perfectly conformed to the likeness of his Son. Amen.